Welcome to another episode of 353rd, a bi-weekly podcast discussing the impact of the internet on business. Today is Friday, May 31st. This is episode number 54. I am one of your hosts, Scott Barstow. And I'm the other, Anders Brownworth. Anders, it's been a month since our last last podcast. Shame, shame. It has. Lots going on. Yeah, there's so much going on, yeah. and of course, that should lead to more content, not less from us, but for some reason, we took the month of May off. Yeah, yeah. Un- unexplainedly so. Exactly. No, yeah. We have no, there's just no way to get around it. <laughs> All things G. All yeah, things G. Yeah, let's talk about, I think probably the biggest event since our last podcast, in my estimation, is Google I.O. Yeah. And, and Google's been on my mind a lot. Not just because of Google I.O., but I'm a, as we've talked about on this show before, I'm a big, I'm a heavy user of all Google products. I use Gmail extensively. We use Gmail. I think in every project we've ever done together, we've used Gmail as the, as the company's mail server. Yeah. Um, You know, it's a great service. You've got Drive, you've got Picasa, you've got Plus, you've got all of these really cool products. And then on the mobile side, of course, you've got maps and Android and they're like, they're, it's a prolific company. Yeah. And, uh, they do, they do so many things really well. What started to bother me about Google is that it feels like they're starting to overreach. Yeah. And what I mean by that is not that they're trying to do too many things. I feel like they're starting to get really invasive about the things they're doing and trying to create, as all companies historically have done, this walled garden of, you know, everything has to belong to us or uh, in order to get the most out of the product. And not only that, but I see things I don't like in terms of privacy and how they're using my information now. As an example, uh, it used to be that when you would search you would use Google for search. Um, you at some point, I mean, you obviously knew they were keeping track of what you were searching for. Yeah. Because that's where they get the value. Now, or it's one of the places where they get, where they add value. Where they well, get, I've, where they get paid. And one of the things that I've started to see really just way more than I ever have before is that I start, you know, so a third party website, if they're using, AdWords, obviously Google is serving ads, or AdSense rather. Yeah. Uh, Google is serving ads to that site, and those ads are almost always contextually aware. Yeah. So, you know, uh, with AdSense, you can restrict kind of what you see, but then Google's job is to show the most relevant ads at the most relevant time on your site. And then if you're using AdSense, you get paid for clicks and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. What I've started to see a ton of is the things that I searched for yesterday, two weeks ago, uh, you know, those kinds of things are starting to show up on almost every page, every other third party page. Yeah. And you I know, I never used to see that before. Yeah. The, this, the, I noticed this when, you know, after I got married, things that my wife had searched for or possibly things that I'd bought for my wife start to filter into my results and yeah, on third, third party sites and stuff like that, which never happened. I don't know if that's a function of my getting married, 
or <laughs> you know somebody else using my computer or uh or or a just some kind of a threshold that Google has reached in terms of well reach to have their uh content on on that many sites and pulling the the you know my my click trail across the internet yeah. from all of those sites and and being able to or being more more uh, algorithmic in the selection of ads. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, so I, I find it to be uh, disconcerting, and yeah. maybe I'm just a you know I I can tend to be a bit paranoid on the privacy stuff, but it like it's it's starting to feel like to me it's starting to feel like you know those annoying push ads you get or the old banner ads in some ways where it was so in your face, and banner ads was a, probably a bad example, but. Yeah. Like there's, it's starting to feel like it's unwanted now. And I never, they always used to be this kind of subtle thing that happened and that, you know, they were always this subtle service that just did things really well and you got to use them and maybe you paid for some of their stuff and maybe you didn't. But now it's like they, it's like there's this push to monetize every single interaction. And I don't know, they feel different to me right now. Yeah. Yeah. It's understandable. So the, it you you mentioned one word early on in your in your setup of the the problem. Uh, you said Google was overserving, and there was there is the there has always been with Google the not invented here syndrome. If it's not invented here, we're not doing it. We got to have our own answer for you know what a database is and what all of these. But that always always tended toward the the technical, the behind the scenes. It's it's been more recent where that attitude I would say is kind of across the the product spectrum, right? You you there there has to be a Google version of everything almost. Yes. Uh, to the point where some of these things are overserving. I don't think, for example, that Google Apps overserves by any measure. I mean, it's really. I mean, it's it's getting to be good enough in some cases, but for the most part, it's still a far cry from Office. For me, it's it's well more than good enough. But for the average person who kind of wants to do annotations in certain ways and uh, uh, track changes and you know different ways, I mean, th- these kinds of things aren't quite solidly nailed yet. So I think there's there's definitely distance they can go in that particular product but mm-hmm. gmail oh for me gmail is great uh the contacts are great other people have problems with gmail i have lived my life out of a gmail in a browser uh for the past oh what you know eight years yeah ever years. since they ever since yeah, they, ever since they started yeah yeah the same with me Ever since the invite, do you remember that was an invite? So they they did that invite system for Gmail. I remember that it was yeah. brilliant. I it remember. Was. I don't remember what number I was, but I was relatively early. Yeah, uh, and that, and that's why I was. The, I've never seen an invite system be done before. Right. That's right. Certainly not at that scale. And it was brilliant because it served both them in their rollout of the service in a predictable way, and also. To generate some some scarcity, generate That's right. some hype out of it. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, I remember when I got my when I finally got my invite. And I don't remember who it was that gave it to me, but I remember you got. I think you got five invites to give away, 
Yes. And I remember when I told people I had it, they were like, oh, can I have the invite? Yeah. Can I have it? <laughs> uh, everybody wanted on. Yeah. Uh, and now it's, I mean, it is, I would say it's the de facto email standard on the on the internet would be my I don't know if it's, any, it's like anywhere you go, they assume you're using Gmail. It's uh, the standard of right. If you have an AOL address, you're you're you know you're back in the Stone Age, right? You're probably over sixty to to engage in mass uh, you know stereotyping. Um, but which we're a big fan of, by the way. We are absolutely no uh, AOL. The AOL address, it used to be the AOL address right. was your address, right? Now, yep. you you would argue maybe that your address is probably a Gmail address. Maybe it took a, a short pit stop at Yahoo in order to get webmail. Or uh, or uh, or Hotmail. Or Hotmail. The other hotmail, that's right. Play. Of course. Yep. And then, uh, and then it's it's been Gmail, but why has Gmail been the gold standard? I think there are two things. One, probably the biggest – the best spam protection that there is. Uh, uh, to me, there. that's it. To me, that's, that's it. That's the number one. Thing. The other yeah. thing, it for me at least, is the way uh, conversations are grouped. And yes, that was revolutionary. That was very when it when it came out, right? Yep. But I'm getting off the point. The point the point that we're getting to here is one of privacy. It's one of overreaching in the privacy domain, right? Not so much in the uh, overreaching to the point where it starts to really bug the the customer. And you would, you know, look at Facebook as the sort of the prime example of this. I mean, what they do is they overreach, let there be a backlash, evaluate how much of a backlash it is, and then pull back a little bit. That's right. And you could say the same thing was true of the Instagram kerfluffle. Yeah. When they had, when they changed their privacy policy uh, to really get much more close to what Facebook was doing at post acquisition, yeah. there was this big blow up, and they had to claw back. But it it and it's it's just yeah you're right. And the the thing about Gmail is it's so good. The spam protection is so good. I love the conversation stuff. That's a great point. And it really was at the time it, they did away with threads. And you, you know, right. if you remember the old Outlook days, you know, email was just a nightmare. Yeah, R E R E R E R E. Yeah, it was just, you yeah. know, it was awful. And so they cleaned all of that stuff up. And I would say, the next iteration of that for me is the is the mailbox app on iPhone, where I feel like they've taken the conversation right. and gone just that next step, where it's just that much better again. But anyway, I digress. So, I think the the question I have for you is. If not Gmail, which is ubiquitous and great spam protection, but you have to live with the fact that Google's crawling your email content for looking for ways to advertise to you. Uh, like if you so if you're not okay with that now, let's say you're not okay with that all of a sudden. I don't think do I don't think all of a sudden. I think it's a slow because I th- I'm on the same track that you are, I gather, but I'm not as far down that track. So the answer to where you should go uh, was the site that was pointed out to me by a friend uh, called Fastmail.fm. Fastmail is a, I think they're out of Australia, I think. Yes, that's um, right. And and they are what App.net was to Twitter. So here's okay. a place that you can go, like back on you know Twitter. There was that kerfluffle about advertising on Twitter. Same same deal. And the alternative is, okay, well, let's go to a paid Twitter, and that's app.net. Mm-hmm. Well, this is the same. 
This is effectively the paid version of Gmail. It's hard to go do Gmail on your own, mostly because of that number one thing, spam detection. That's right. And we've done this for eons in the uh, the corporate space and, and all, and nothing is nearly as effective as Google's solution to this. It is really stellar. So anything it would seem is a is a step down maybe maybe that's not true of uh of some players but i'm just not aware of them fastmail to me is you are putting the you're you're putting the costs in their really their direct place in gmail the whole the whole idea with google is to cast as wide a net as possible to get as many people in there, as many clicks, as much information. It doesn't matter if it's Gmail, Google Search, all the different properties. It doesn't matter. You really want to get more and more people. You want to put people in the top of that funnel because they make money at the very bottom of the funnel. So they're, they're resistant to things that, that uh, would stop people getting in the top of the funnel or maybe change the funnel. Um, but the, the material point there is the price their their revenue stream is very far or very disconnected from the services that they deliver. I mean, look at Android. Right. Right? It's a whole you don't pay to get Android as a consumer. I mean, it's effectively free. It's this open source project you can download and compile and run on your phone should you want. Most people don't have the technical sophistication to do that, but it is actually possible. Uh, so. So Google's strategy there is, hey, we're trying to cast a wider and wider net, get more and more people in the top of the funnel, because we know if, we know once we have them, if they filter all the way down to the very bottom, we can get av- money principally in the uh, form of advertisement dollars out of the bottom of this funnel. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's, instead of using that wide distance between Google and the, the way that people come in and use the products and the way that Google makes money, instead of that wide uh, distance there, we have this tight connection. You, you are buying a mail service for $4.99 or 20 bucks or whatever it is per year. That's that, you are paying for that service. In the case mm-hmm. of AppNet, you are paying for a Twitter-like service that has no ads because you pay for it. That's right. So if you look at Google strategy now some they do sell Gmail for 50 bucks a year in the business uh, context. Right. And they, they you also have to pay for Gmail if you go above whatever is it 6 gigs now or something that you right. get whatever free the, mail. Which right. I actually do. I'm I'm above the threshold so I pay well, why? you know $20 a year or something like that. Just because I like having I've never gone through and purged my mail. Got it. So it's eight years of mail. Gotcha. And Makes sense. It's just me being lazy. So so yeah. So that's a that's a good point though. I mean, you pay twenty bucks to Google for for an expanded box, but they still advertise to that's you. That's right. So, so I should be able to turn that off. I would. It would. I'd, in an ideal scenario, I'd be able to turn that off. But even if I could turn it off, I wouldn't trust that I was turning it off. Right. Well. Well. There, what are you turning off? Are you turning off the display of ads, or more importantly, are you turning off their scraping your mail for keywords? Yeah, the second is what I would be after. I couldn't care about the. I couldn't right. care less about the first. You can, so. uh, as sophisticated net users, we effectively visually ignore advertising. Right. You kind of I like I, when I look at Google results, 
the top group in in the yellow and then maybe the things down the side or whatever the yeah, I the never paint, look at it. I never even I don't even see it. Yeah. It's like I scroll past it to get to the first organic result. Yeah, now, that's most right. unsophisticated net users, which I would argue is the vast majority, don't do that. And it, you, you, you should understand that those people effectively subsidize the, the tech ruling elite and allow us to use Google Did search you really for just free. Say that? I'm serious. <laughs> the, it's true. The, the, the unwashed masses are paying the bill for the people who really know what they're doing. Yeah, well, so you disagree. The question then is, so what Google services do for you, whether it's mail integrated with contacts, integrated with apps, integrated with Drive, integrated with Plus, which nobody uses, like you got, so you get this benefit of having a login that lets you do all these amazing, amazing things. If you start replacing those services one off with best of breed other Susan, let's say Fastmail is the best email service that's not Gmail, just yeah. to say that it is. I don't know if that's true or not. But if it were, are you willing to pay the convenience price for a for more privacy? Or just for just to get them out of your knickers a little bit more? So I get closer and closer to that point. I gather you're all, you're you're far closer than I am. I say I am, but then I, you know, it's it will be that'll be a really tough decision because your the convenience of it is amazing. Well, let's okay. So let's talk about switching costs, switching pain. What mm -hmm. is it for you? So do you do you tout uh, your Gmail address on business cards, for example? Nope. Okay. No, but everybody, I've used the same Gmail address for personal email ever since I signed up. Like when I signed up, I told. I pointed my at the time I think I was using Hotmail. Yeah. And I pointed my I forwarded all my Hotmail to my Gmail and that's the only address that I ever gave out for personal. I don't use it for work at all. So the last 8 years <laughs> you've you've this has been your personal mail and that's it. Yep. So there's a critical mistake I made when I did effectively the same thing. I moved from anders.com email addresses to Gmail. The critical mistake was to not push Anders.com over to Gmail and, and run the domain in Gmail, however much that cost. Right now, I've got a Gmail address that people know, and this is this is my switching cost. I do all of my signups for all the sites and whatnot are, are Anders.com or some other domain right. that is not Gmail that forwards to Gmail because effectively the only thing I really wanted, I wanted a way to wrest control away from any G, any service provider, like a mail service provider. So I, I kept it separate like that, but I got trapped by replying to these things and therefore disseminating my Gmail address. Sure. Yeah. So Makes I feel total like sense. my, my switch cost is not quite as high, but still, by far not zero. Yeah. And so what I've been doing to hopefully mitigate this at some point, if I decide to make the decision, is that one of the things I do for backup is that I pull all of my mail off of Gmail regularly and save it somewhere you do. else. Interesting. Yeah. So I've got yeah. a so I use IMAP. 
I've got an IMAP client on my machine, and every week or so, I'll go in, start that thing up, and let it back up that week's mail to my local box. And then I shut it down to make sure that if something happened on Gmail, it doesn't sync and wipe out all all of my mail local. So I could always see all of my mail and then, in theory, push that mail somewhere else. So what's the problem? It's not searchable? I mean, why don't you do that right. now? It's not searchable. Yeah. It's, I mean, you're using a, a mail client, and they all stink, and I don't want to be tied to a desktop, you know, a desktop client. Remember and, those days? Yeah. So <laughs> I think the, you know, so the switching costs are high but could be done. I think it's for me, it's probably as much about just how good the service is and the convenience of it. Um, that probably has me. Every time I think about it, I wince. I wince. Um, yeah. But it's but it's something I think about more because I think there's you need to. I think we've got to. We owe it to ourselves to not just stick our heads in the sand and say, "Oh, everything's going to be fine," and we can trust all these companies. I think that's a big mistake. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. I feel the same way about any you know any company that's co-opting that much of your personal information. You need to be really wary of because. You know, there's all sorts of reasons why that's the case, uh, not only for your own personal privacy, but just your exposure to theft and your exposure to government intrusion and all those kinds of things. The more widely spread you are in many ways, the better. So, Yeah, it seems to me that only old people talk about this. I don't hear the that's right. young generations talking right. about this. Like, did they not conceded. read 1984? They conceded it, yeah. Yeah, and I've talked yeah. to several college students over the last two months, and they yeah. just say, privacy's dead, we accept it, which wow. I think is sad. It is. Golly, that's <laughs> sort of scary if you were, you know, if you were born when we were, I, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, so Google I.O., yeah. talk to me. Uh, yeah, so the, the thing that Google I.O. I thought was really good I mean, they just, it was long. Obviously, it was like three hours long or something like that. It was crazy. Yeah. Uh, But I thought it was really good until Larry Page got up to talk. Yeah. And I felt like he just sucked the air out of the room. And and he did it by just being incredibly arrogant. The entire speech was... You know, he he was trying to... And I see this so often with people who have this righteous self-importance. Um, it, he started off with, you know, well, can't we all just get along? And wouldn't it be great if we lived in a world where companies just work together? And meanwhile, they're one of the largest companies creating one of the largest walled gardens on the Internet and doing it increasingly, increasingly walling themselves off and, and becoming less open rather than more. And I thought it was disingenuous for him to get up there and criticize Microsoft for not doing something when they're doing, you know, for not having open standards for instant messaging when they're doing the same thing. Their new client uh, is not is not using open standards, which which is the thing that's amazing. Which which client? What are you? Their new uh, their new chat client. Okay. Um, So they they've actually. Uh, they've actually gone away from I forget what the standard they've gone away from. Uh, yes, uh, and anyway, it doesn't XMPP. But uh, the uh, you know, and just his hubris with you know, well, these laws shouldn't apply to us anymore, and you know, his entire rant about uh, he had this rant about health insurance and just things that he's got no business talking about, and you know, and I just found I found him to be. I guess the whole his whole speech 
uh, was, you know, incredibly arrogant. Was and I feel, like, I feel like they're sort of where you would have heard that same thing from Bill Gates at the, at the pinnacle of Microsoft's. Yeah, in the 90s. Yeah, when they were so, when they were running, you know, guns blazing and could do no wrong. He would he was all about, you know, building big ideas and let's do big things. And meanwhile, we're going to own everything you do. Well, is it is it a just a, a a lack of understanding of the audience there for that kind of a message? Do you think, or is it really seriously? You know, he's sort of off the deep end. I mean, I got a, an impression like that, but not nearly to that degree. Uh, I walked over to Google a uh, couple blocks away here and and spent the day there uh, hacking from there. And first of all, it was the longest keynote I've ever experienced. Oh my gosh, it went on forever. Golly, and then but beautiful like that screen behind them that was oh my gosh spectacular it was awesome spectacular like the maps demonstrations and things like that was great it was great i was sitting there during the maps thing you know updating iso and and run dumper and all my little projects that use maps pub sub they all have the new maps by the way um so like after having been through that then he gets up there and first of all you know i'm wondering what what's been the problem with his voice and then uh and then he and then he starts talking about those things i did get that uh impression from uh you know probably to a lesser degree uh and then going from there you know i'm wondering is it a disconnection from what the uh, average listener kind of thinks of the world I don't or know. Is he, I, I don't know because is he know, just trying were, to be a fearless leader? I mean, I think there was lots of applause in the room for the things he said. That's true. And but I, you know, he had that Q and A session at the end, and nobody got up there and asked a question critical of what they're doing. Yeah, but, well, but look at the audience. I mean, you know, I know it's all fans, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, they're there because I they mean, love what they're doing and. Sure, but I mean, there were reporters there. I mean, Robert Scoble was there and asked the first question or something like that. <laughs> he, when and, he gets, you have to understand when he gets in the room, right? He sees that mic. He goes up and yeah, stands yeah, by. I mean, he, during yeah, the talk, he loves it. He loves it. Yeah. He eats that thing up. He does. <laughs> but the but nobody stood up there. I mean, I would have loved to have been in the room and asked the question. You know, what gives you 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 say you're about you know privacy and protecting people and all and then you come by my house with your stupid car and take a picture of my house without yeah. asking me and i don't have the right to tell you you can't use it you just do yeah and like they're so disconnected from uh i but, really do believe but the 20 year old doesn't have a problem with that Nope. First of all, there isn't a law against it. Okay. So, but then again, you know, the laws that would have been written against that were written well before Google That's even right. existed. That's right. So then the, the other mass reaction to that are the younger generation that are like, oh, great. I can see where such and such a business is, or I can right. check out, and you know, whatever, perfect. whatever. That's great. That's great. If you, if a business yeah. wants to allow that to happen, that's great. Yeah. I think it's, I just think, the I really do believe that he he's starting to get this messiah complex where he believes everything he's doing is for the betterment of humankind, yeah, right. and in reality, the every everything that they do is for the betterment of Larry and Sergey. 
Right. Well, you're going to be, be open about everything except, for example, the secret sauce behind the search engine. You yeah, know, the how thing that makes them all their money. Which, which is totally appropriate if you're yep. running that kind of a business. But own it. Yeah, so, exactly. Uh, so Bitcoin, let's quickly touch on Bitcoin. We're running out of time, so I don't want to. I don't want to miss my favorite topic to test <laughs> week. You yeah, want to open Bitcoin this? is blowing up. Bitcoin's blowing up. And uh, let's talk quickly about what we're doing yes. uh, with Bitcoin. So I know you've been, you've been doing some trading. I have. And so let's go quickly through that and then or what we're starting to work on and then we'll wrap up. So you can trade between Bitcoin and U.S. dollar. Uh, if you, you have some Bitcoin, you mined it maybe, maybe you bought it somehow. You can trade between Bitcoin and U.S. dollar, and the currency fluctuates far more than a standard currency does. And because there is that wide fluctuation, it presents a, an awesome opportunity to make a profit. You buy low, you sell high. Very simple. And I started doing this by hand, and I was you know, somewhat successful at it. So I said, all right, I, this is cool, but I don't have the time to sit here all day and watch the price of Bitcoin as it goes up and down and kind of get a seat of the pants feel for when I should do a buy or a sell. So I reduced the algorithm in my head to a, a program that drives an API that does this. Uh, so I think there's a really interesting opportunity there. And the value to something like that for Bitcoin is here is a, uh, here is a system that will provide liquidity or stability to the price of the value of Bitcoin to US dollar. Right. So I think there's a there is a need in the market for this. It's not just like making money out of nowhere. I think there's a real need in the market for somebody to when the price of Bitcoin is crashing for people to step up with dollars and and start buying. And that's what this would would deliver. And and vice versa when the price of Bitcoin is soaring, you know, here's people that are willing to sell Bitcoin. Right. So I, yeah, I, think, I think it's going to be interesting. Yeah. It, it, the marketplace idea, and there's a there's a number of companies entering the trading space already. There are, yeah. Tra uh, trade Hill is <laughs> yeah. very interesting out of San yeah. Fran. Um, but the problem with this market right now, it's just, of course, it's very young. There's not a lot of uh, there's really not a lot of liquidity. There's not a lot of uh, people buying and selling Bitcoin. There's not a lot of uh, money to be made. You can you could theoretically make a, an enormous move and put millions of dollars into Bitcoin. But the fact of the matter is the entire market is not big enough to support you making a ton of money by trading a, you know, a million Bitcoin or something like that. Right. Yeah, so. there's not enough buyers yet. Yeah. But the, the other thing that the obvious problem with that your trading system exposes in my mind is there's no clarity around what the like what happens to the proceeds that you made and like is that taxable of course it's taxable if you're the federal sure. government but how are they made aware of it and like well, all of those all of those things yeah that uh you kind of got this shadow currency you or do. dark net currency that you could yeah. if everybody supported it so if all merchants took it you could buy and sell goods with it without money ever changing hands which is Radical, right? That's yeah. that's where it's it's certainly very gray and probably a very dark gray. Where right. it's not quite so gray is in the trading example. If I let's say I took uh, ten thousand dollars and I bought Bitcoin, 
right? In order to do that, I really have to, in, you know, we're in the U.S., so you have to set up a Dwala account, and then that requires you to put your, you know, your social security number, all of your, your identity information you right. know, to them. And then you can transfer the money to the biggest exchange, which exists right now for Bitcoin, which is Mt. Gox, and they have a similar requirement. You have to authenticate yourself. Here's, here's my ID. You have to do, you know, it's very, it's very, Yep, you've got to provide then, a driver's license right. or a passport then, or whatever, yeah. And then you trade, 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 and let's say you, you did well, and you now you got $15,000. Okay, now you want to get it back. Well, you in moving it back and taking it, you, you now have a $5,000 increase, which is very visible and easy for the IRS to say, okay, that's, that's income. And it is, right. and that's, I'm fine with that. Yep. Now, the problem comes when Amazon accepts Bitcoin. And yes. I can buy – now, there is a real problem. So how do you do that? Well, as a government, you go to Amazon and you say, we collect this amount of tax when you, when you sell something you know, via Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And that's, the only, that, that's the only way really that you can do it. You can't technically do it in the middle of the system because it's a distributed you know, encrypted right. currency. Well, and, if, and if Amazon – let's say in your example, you buy – Ten dollars worth of worth of merchandise from Amazon, and yeah. Amazon turns around and spends that ten dollars buying, you know, exactly. hardware from some exactly. other company, you know, buy from some Chinese company. That money never hits their never bank hits account. Taxable, it never hits a taxable right. entity. Yeah, and so that's where I think it's going to be interesting because technically, really, you know. Do you you could keep that completely off the books if you wanted to? You could. Here's an interesting idea. Then, what about instead of using everywhere we've used the word Bitcoin, let's use the word gold. Mm-hmm. So I go to Amazon. I want to buy something with gold. I ha- I, give, I ship them a piece of you know slab. <laughs> ship them a nugget. Ship them a nugget. They now they ship me my product, whatever. But instead of trying to turn that nugget into dollars. They go and they buy from their suppliers the same way. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a barter system on gold now instead. Yeah, exactly. Now, the, the, obvious, the reason I brought that up is to set you up in saying. Well, I do believe that Bitcoin is the closest thing we've come to replacing gold. Yeah. Uh, certainly in our lifetime. I think that's a, that's a really very, very interesting statement right there. Yeah. And the reason is this is the first time that I'm aware of that a virtual currency has been – First of all, outside the borders of any nationality, decentralized, and like all of these things that make Bitcoin unique, untraceable, essentially. It's just a set of IDs and uh, you know, key phrases to get to your, to get to your wallet. And yeah. it's really the first time that I can think of where you have the capacity to exchange currency in, you know, in a denomination that uh, you know, has meaning, has no tie to paper money whatsoever yeah. since gold. I mean, it's, it could be, Bitcoin could be, for those who are, who want to participate, could be the, you know, kind of a gold standard kind of moment. Agreed. Which so, is radical when you think about it. I mean, it's, it's really, it's nothing more than just a set of bits. Right. Yeah, which but it's, is but radical. it's, it's, it's provable in a democratic system it's approvable right. in a system of quorum essentially That's right. which That's is right. really interesting and there by the, incidentally there's a there was an interesting point that was made that you can uh, i have to pull up the reference for it that you can 
use the Bitcoin blockchain as a proof of, you know how, you know, if you kidnap somebody and you want to, you know, show them that they're alive, they, sure. you take a picture with the, the you know, some newspaper, yep. today's edition of some newspaper to prove, well, that, that, you know, that person was alive at that time, at least, right? Mm -hmm. So it's the same thing in, in Bitcoin. You can, if you have a document, a digital document, you do a SHA-256 uh uh, digest of it and you get that digest and you push that into the Bitcoin blockchain and you can prove that you had that document in that form at that time. Mm. I think it's an interesting use of, because frankly, what Bitcoin is, is a public uh, ledger. Yes. That's, that's, you know, all the transactions are open for everyone to see and audit. And you can, and it doesn't have to be a Bitcoin transaction. It can actually just be any SHA you want to prove that you know existed at some time so you can shaw up anything that's digital so you shaw an image of whatever and you can prove that you had that image in an unaltered state at that point in time that's, that's really a, interesting you think about the ramifications of that for legal yeah. documents yeah. or you know things like that where you can say i know that i know that it was exactly this state at exactly this time yeah so uh, if if so. if bitcoin if the bitcoin blockchain starts to be used this way in any any fashion it starts to have implications beyond just a currency indeed you know because people start to rely on it for yep. things outside of you know this this dark currency essentially mm -hmm. so i yeah i think i think that's that's very. Yeah, it introduces. I, I read something yesterday that I thought was really a really good analogy or thought on uh, kind of a closing thought on Bitcoin, which was uh, the guy said, you know, in the movie The Matrix, the at the end of the movie, he has the chance to take the blue pill and go back to the way th things were, yeah, the, the life that he knew, or take the red pill and move on and live the live this new life live that he's now life. aware of, live the reality, <laughs> live the reality, and he decides to take the red pill. And yeah. I think that's kind of where we are with Bitcoin, where you can ignore it and just say, eh, you know, that's for the, all these whack jobs who, you know, who are trying to keep all their money outside the government. I, it's really not about it's not like, that. in the Bitcoin yeah. community at all. It's really just a different way to, uh, you know, to exchange value for value. Yeah. And I'm sure, though, governments will find a way. You know, those that are interested enough will find a way to, uh, you know, to audit it and uh, or rely, you know, there'll be some systems that the government introduces or they'll try to shut it down by blocking, you know, in Chinese style, they'll start blocking ports on the Internet and blocking, yeah, you know, blocking that's, traffic. And that's it just gonna, doesn't work. <laughs> that's not going to work. Yeah. yeah. I, so let, let's quickly talk about mining, by the way, um, before we jump off of Bitcoin. Okay. You you were you were going to talk about the other business in in Bitcoin. All right, yeah. So the the other thing we've got going is uh, we have we've bought a couple of Bitcoin miners, which is really interesting. There they were by we bought two of the fifty gigahash miners from uh, Butterfly Labs. Yeah. Uh, so these things are just amazingly powerful, and we're really excited about cranking these things up and seeing what happens and how. 
How does well, the mining, you know, how does the, how quickly does it mine? And the current ROI, you sent me the stats on the ROI the other day, which is just amazing. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. It's crazy right now, but it's a, it's a definitely, right, but we know it won't be. It's a closing, a window of closing opportunity. And the thing is with, with uh, butterfly labs, first of all, a lot of people saying butterfly labs is a scam. Uh, and for, for, you know, very understandable, rational reasons, 11 months ago, they announced that they would make these things available and people have been putting pre-orders and there's been delay after delay after delay. And 11 months on, we still don't have, you know, there are a couple of people that have taken delivery, but for the most part, nobody has their devices. Uh, so it's a, it's a really dangerous bet. But on the other hand, um, you know, once, once, so a really quick history here, Bitcoin, you can mine for Bitcoin by doing computation on uh, processors. So initially that would have meant CPUs and you could call it, you could mine in the basically the tens of millions of hashes a second. Then uh, people realize, oh, SHA-256 is a very simple algorithm. We could tr uh, train GPUs to do this. And so they started mining GPUs and there you go. There's a 10x increase in the speed of mining. Then FPGAs, field programmable gate arrays, come out. And there's another eff effectively 10x increase in uh, CPU, in, in uh, mining capacity. And now, you know, a lot of the people that are doing mining are using FPGAs. Well, if you take the last step on that chain, you actually make a chip that is built to do SHA-256 encoding in real time on a, on a just, just burned into the chip. That's what these things that we're talking about are. These are ASIC miners, and they're able able to do in the gigahash a second um, mining. So what's going to happen here, Bitcoin is, is built up so that you can, the mining complexity grows with the capability of the network. So as this gets more and more complicated, uh, your your capacity to mine goes down and down. And the, the game, and I wrote an uh, article ab about this, or a post, I should say, about this on Anders.com called Breaking Bitcoin. Every time there is a shift like this, a 10x, you know, order of magnitude type of a shift, the ability to mine gets focused into the hands of only the people that have that, that new technology. Sure. Essentially, a very few. And the ability to subvert the network happens at that time you know, really, really, you know, comes to, comes to light at that time, a bad actor could actually take over the majority of the mining capacity if they bought enough of these things It's very unlikely. But a bad actor could actually do that at this point. And, right. um, you know, I, guess, I suppose there is no guarantee that that hasn't already happened in the Bitcoin universe. Uh, if you think about it, but the the uh, you, you can just watch the complexity requirements of the system and know that it hasn't made a you know any kind of exponential jump yet so so it doesn't seem to have happened but you know in a system where quorum matters uh, you you anytime you focus it down the power down to a very few number of actors gaining that quorum becomes more and more of a possibility yeah and I, the thing that's the obvious question about butterfly labs in my opinion is why wouldn't they just do exactly what you just talked about? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I mean, they're, they're making money today on yeah. it. Uh, so they're taking speculative money and making real money. Right. That's they're, the obvious answer. Right. But, right. There, there's that. And there's also the, the thing, well, maybe they are, maybe they, this is what they are doing. Who knows? And then 
there are other companies like Avalon Technologies that had a product and then sort of disappeared. I mean, mm -hmm. you can't buy it anymore. You sit there thinking, well, either somebody dropped a billion dollars on them and said, we'll yeah. buy all your capacity, let's go. Right. And it's hugely speculative. Or they're just saying, look, it just doesn't make sense to sell these things. You know, we're right. just going to run them. Yeah, so. which I think uh, if you're – if you. The question is only one of capital at that point. So exactly. you could make the argument that Butterfly, by Butterfly well, Labs selling these things, they now have the capital to invest to run their own and you know, you know, well, all those kind of a, things. To a point. See, the, the problem would be if you took a billion dollars and dropped it on Butterfly and said, look, we'll pay you not to ship these things to anyone and we'll just take the, the capacity. If you did that, I mean, you know, that certainly could happen, right? If yep. you did that, you and you started mining, how do you get the money out of the system? Right. You're, you're, if you're a billion dollars, you're betting that the Bitcoin currency is the currency and that's, you know, you're not going to turn it into, you know, euros or dollars or something. Yep. So that's the, that's the other side to it. Yeah, exactly. Good stuff. Yeah. Good stuff. Lots to talk about. We went a little bit longer today, but, uh, but, uh, we'll, uh, next show we'll be back to our normal kind of 30 minute length. Absolutely. Uh, kind of thing. But, uh, Bitcoin is so, so important and, it's not important necessarily if it succeeds or fails. It's really important because I think it's a, it's like we talked about with Node.js and those kind of tech. It's a signal that you know there's now technology uh, coming that can make this kind of thing a reality. So yeah, yeah, good stuff. Absolutely. Well, well thanks for listening. Uh, yeah, big shout out to Gersh. Yeah, we love the Gersh. Uh, check our our website for any reference to uh, materials that we post for this show. Uh, 353rd.com like us on iTunes or on Facebook and iTunes we yep. love your reviews in uh, iTunes can't get enough of those good or bad and we'll <laughs> see you next time sounds good bye <laughs>